Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Children of the night. Come on into the cabin. It's chilly here in the Shenandoah, but I think that winter may very well be on the way out. Well, come on in and have a seat. We have a fire and some warm cider over there. Help yourself. I've been getting some reading done, and it's not squarely in our shared genre of horror. I'm within the last hundred pages of Stephen King's Dark Tower series, which is thousands of pages long altogether. It's been a big logjam for me, since as a host of a horror podcast, I really do want to focus on the things that go bump in the night. Once I'm through that with my longer reads, I think I'll focus on the Goodreads Choice Award nominees for 2015. Link will be in the show notes if you'd like. Nick Cutter is on the list, and I really liked The Troop. My wife read David Mitchell's Slade House, so maybe I'll give that one a go. While we're on the topic of awards, As you're hearing this, it's likely that the Horror Writers Association has released their final list of nominees for the Stoker Award, and we're likely contacting authors to see if we can run their stories for our Stoker Awards episodes. As I'm recording this, their prelim nominations had closed and the finals had not yet been published. I've got my eye on a few favorites, but best of luck to all of the authors, particularly in the short fiction category. First up will be a story from Erin Caldwell. Erin is a second-year law student from Georgia. She has a useless physics degree and feminist leanings. Oh, and her black cat will eat your honor student. And now Erin Caldwell's Black Twine. He put the tumbler to his lips and kicked back a gulp of whiskey. 
then returned to scanning the smoke-infested club. Under pulsing lights, waitresses quick-walked with hips swaying and patrons divided their attention between the dancers on the stage and their inebriant indulgences. He wasn't there for a lap dance or feigned coquettishness, but he felt that in a place like this, with its cracked linoleum floors and wobbling tables, he would find what he was looking for. Can I get you another drink, honey? He turned to see his waitress hovering, with her face inches above his and her low-cut lycra top not far below. Her smile wavered when he did not immediately respond. He considered her momentarily before noting her toned arms and how prime they were for resistance. No, she was not the one. I'm fine with this one, thank you. He had performed this laborious sequence once a month for as long as he could remember, driving hours to a remote venue only visited by lonely truckers on cross-country routes. But it was always worth it in the end. Their squirming, their muffled screams, it gave him a surge. It was not as though he couldn't get women to like him on their own volition. He was well-educated, well-dressed, and blessed with a strong jawline and thick golden blonde hair. These country-slum women fawned over his metropolitan suaveness and plentiful charisma. But it was their discomfort, their unwillingness, that he relished. And they were asking for it. Prideless skanks! Women ready to shed their dignity for five dollars or a half an hour of a man's time. And he felt that even amidst their beseeching wails, they enjoyed what he did to them. Across the room, an unshaven man in a wife-beater slapped a dancer on her backside. She turned around with wide eyes and returned him a weak smile betraying several missing teeth. She continued to sway around the pole, her bruised legs unsteady under her weight. What a pretty defective, he thought with piqued interest. Her condition was a testament to her experience as the outlet of men's fury. He rose from his chair and moved closer to the stage. Magenta lights darted over her pockmarked face. He noticed her clothing choice, a primitive-looking two-piece, composed of patches of leather laced together with thick black twine. He was drawn to her and her self-doubt. She started off the stage when he intercepted her. What is a woman like you doing in a place like this? She turned to him with unveiled surprise. He knew that his fine clothing and comely appearance was a contrast to the uncouth characters that frequented the desert bar. How about I buy you a drink? No, I've been sober for four months, she responded.
her voice quivering. She spoke with a drawl characteristic of the rural folk in the old mining town. "'Well, can I take you out when you finish your shift?' "'Sure. I just have to clock out, and I'll be ready to go. Can you meet me around back?' Emerging from a screen door, she met him. "'Want to go to my house? It's just down the street.' They started to walk, but she stopped abruptly. "'One more thing,' she said, eyeing him suspiciously. "'You haven't even told me your name.' Machiavelli, he replied coolly. She had no use for his real name. The answer seemed to placate her, and they headed down a road framed by cacti and the sand kicked up by their feet. The path was devoid of artificial light. He followed closely behind her, and she babbled incessantly. I've got to fess up that I do live with my sister, but she's not home tonight. I've got some leftover pot rust from yesterday's dinner. It's probably not what a city boy like you is used to, but everyone says my pot roast is larrapin. He didn't have the slightest clue what that meant, and he did not care enough to ask. The more she talked, the more he wanted to cut to the chase. He considered forcing himself on her, on the roadside, but the skulls of animals that littered the road curbed his desires. "'Well, here we are. I told you it wasn't far,' she said, stopping in front of a structure that he considered more of a shed than a house. "'Isn't it cozy?' "'It's lovely. Are you sure this is the right place?' I think this might be Michael McCall's vacation home. She returned a blank stare. Dumb bitch really didn't know who that was, he mused. You know, the congressman. Oh, stop bootlicking, she laughed, swatting him playfully on the shoulder. The interior of the house was yet worse. The carpet looked as though a rake had been dragged through it, and the walls were stained with grease. The flickering light fixture on the wall played host to a festivity of insects, fluttering and writhing in clumps on the wall around it. A doll's head, dirty dishes, among other debris littered the floor, and black twine. Lots of it. He counted at least four spools resting in different corners. It will serve its purpose, he thought. He stepped closer to her and put his hands on her shoulder. She wriggled out of his grasp. Now you just take yourself a seat on the couch while I heat up some grub. She walked into the kitchen, the western door swinging shut past her. He ground his teeth, wondering how much longer he could wait until his urges got the best of him. He sat for a few minutes, staring at a pile of soiled tabloids and modern quilting magazines on the coffee table, 
from 1995. Before getting up, just as she returned with two plates of brown slop, he hastily took the plates and set them on the table. "'Are you in a hurry or something?' she asked. He put his hands around her throat and pushed her to the ground. She toppled easily and tried to get up, but he had her pinned. He squeezed harder and looked into her eyes. But her look was not one of fear. Annoyance, maybe. This infuriated him and he reached in his pocket for a lighter. He turned it on momentarily before pressing it against her shoulder blade. The smell of smoldering skin filled his nostrils. How did she like that? She grimaced. He relished her in her pain. Then she let out a throaty chuckle. You know, when you've been working the pole as long as I have, a little heat don't scare you none. He started to push her away, but she locked her arms around him. Where do you think you're going? It's my turn now. She held him in an embrace before pulling forward, forcefully. He looked down in time to see a thin wire emerge from his belly and watch his lower body slide from his torso like a chunk of meat sliced off a butcher's block. Sally, is that you? The door swung open and shut, rattling the frame. Yeah, we got out early tonight. Place was dead as a doornail. What is that? she asked, pointing to the crumpled heap in the corner. Oh, that one. Some guy I picked up at the bar. Dumb as a box of hammers he was. But he didn't put up much of a fight, which is good because I don't need any more of these here bruises. Mama taught you well. Beautiful skin on that one. You fixin' to use him to make another bikini with him? Don't forget you promised to make me one. I will, but first I'm going to use him to finish the one I've got going for another dancer at the bar. She walked across the room to what used to be the man called Machiavelli, though she doubted that was his real name. She took out a razor and gently started flaying the body, working with the diligence of an artisan. Her sister sank on the soiled couch. She watched her for a few minutes, chewing on her nails pensively before speaking. How many have you chopped up this month? Five so far. You can't keep on like that. She looked up from her craft. I know, I know. But you should have seen this one. His intentions, his demeanor. He was asking for it. That was Aaron Caldwell's Black Twine, read by Josie Bavin. By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline and one human. 
She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works, as well as a few video game boxes. Thank you, Josie. Now, our second story for the evening comes from F. Paul Wilson. F. Paul Wilson is the New York Times bestselling author of horror, adventure, medical thriller, science fiction, and virtually everything in between. His books include the Repairman Jack novels, including Ground Zero, The Tomb, and Fatal Error, The Adversary Cycle, including The Keep, and a young adult series featuring the teenage Jack. Wilson has won the Prometheus Award, the Bram Stoker Award, the Inkpot Award from the San Diego Comic-Con, and the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Horror Writers of America, among other honors. He lives in Wall, New Jersey. And now, F. Paul Wilson's The Tenth Toe. The Tenth Toe, or The Beginning of My End, by Doc Holliday. Transcribed by F. Paul Wilson. Narrated by Rock Manor. I am 35 years old and will not see 36. I was not always the weak, wheezing, crumbling sack of bones you see before you, a man whose days can be numbered on the fingers of one hand. Nor was I always the hard-drinking gambler and shootest you read of in the Penny Dreadfuls. I started out a much more genteel man, a professional man, even a bit of a milk toast, one might say, but a flawed milk toast. I attended medical school but did not succeed there, so I became a matriculant at a nearby dental school, from which I managed to graduate. I was then a professional man and proud of it, but I remained flawed, cursed with a larcenous heart. No amount of schooling, be it of the medical, dental, or, I dare say, divinity sort, can extract that stubborn worm. You are born with it, and you die with it, if not from it. I am dying from it. It was that young professional man with the larcenous heart who led me to notoriety and to this premature death from consumption. Allow me to explain. The first inkling I had of the curse was in the spring of 1878 while I was examining Mrs. DeLulith. Mrs. DeLulith's husband owned the Dodge City General Store, and it was obvious, at least to me, that food was not in short supply on her supper table. She was fat. Truthfully, I have been in outhouses smaller than this woman. Everything about her was fat. Her face was fat and round like a huge honeydew melon. Her lips were thick and fat. Even her nose and ears were fat. Will this hurt? she said as she lay back, overflowing my relatively new reclining dental chair. I hoped she wouldn't break its lift mechanism. Not a bit, I told her. After all, this is 1878, not the Dark Ages. We are now blessed with the modern methods of painless dentistry. What do you plan to do? I'm going to administer some sulfuric ether, I heard myself say. And when you're unconscious, I'm going to rob you. I saw her eyes widen, and she must have seen mine do the same. I hadn't meant to say that. True, I had been thinking it, but I'd had no intention of verbalizing it. What? What did you say, Dr. Holliday? I said I'm going to rob you. Just a little. 
I'll go through your purse and take some of your money, not all of it, just enough to make this exercise worth my while. I really don't think that's very funny, doctor, she said. I gulped and steadied myself with an effort. Neither do I, Mrs. DeLuleth. And I meant it. What was coming over me? Why was I saying these things? A joke, a, a dentist joke. Sorry. I should hope so, she seemed somewhat mollified. Now about this tooth. Who cares about that tooth? I'm interested in the third molar there with the big gold filling. I'm going to pop that beauty out and replace it with some garbage metal that looks like gold. What was I saying? That is quite enough, she said, rolling out of the chair. She straightened her enormous gingham dress and headed for the door. Mrs. DeLulith, wait, I... Never mind, I'll find myself another dentist. One I can trust, like that new fellow across the street. As she went down the steps, she slapped at my shingle, knocking it off one of its hooks. It swung and twisted at a crazy angle until I stepped out and rehung it. John Henry Holliday, DDS, Painless Dentistry. I loved that sign. It was making me rich. I could have made a good living just from the usual drilling, filling, and pulling of my patient's teeth, but that is not enough for my larcenous heart. I had to be rich. And I was getting rich quickly from the gold I was mining, literally, from my patient's teeth. I'd found an excellent gold-like compound that I substituted for the real thing while they were out cold in the chair. It was nowhere near as good as gold, but no one had caught on yet. I had another couple of years before the replacement filling started to fall apart. Of course, my practice wouldn't last that couple of years if I treated all my patients like Mrs. DeLula. Luckily, the waiting room had been empty. I closed the door behind her and stood there thinking. I admit I was somewhat shaken. What was wrong with me? I hadn't meant to say any of those things. A short while later, the widow Porter arrived with her daughter, Bonnie, who had a toothache. Bonnie was sixteen and extremely buxom for her age. Her bosom was apparently growing at such a rate that the bodice of her dress could not keep pace. She was fairly bursting from it. The tortured seams appeared ready to split. From the way she carried herself, proudly erect with her bust thrust out at the world, I assumed that she was well aware of and reveled in the male gender's reaction to her proportions. Bonnie had a cavity in her second lower left molar. As I leaned over her to examine the tooth more closely, she arched her back so that her breast brushed against my arm. I straightened and looked at her. She stared back and smiled boldly. This was one of the most brazen young females I'd ever met. I was becoming... I hesitate to say it, aroused. Teenage girls were never my style. They tend to fall in love, which can be most inconvenient. But for a young thing of Bonnie's proportions, I realized that I might make an exception. She'll need a filling, I told her mother. Oh, dear, the widow porter said. You mean you'll have to use the drill? The drill? Bonnie said, the simper suddenly gone out of her. The drill? Yes. I lifted the instrument from its hook and pumped the pedal to show her how the bit spun. Her expression was horrified. You're going to put that in my mouth? Yes, but I really, I could feel my tongue starting to run off without me. 
but I refused to let it get away this time. I bit down to hold it in place, but it broke free. Like to put something else in your mouth, if you know what I mean. Not again. I seemed utterly hopeless against this. Really? Bonnie said, smiling again and thrusting her breast out even further. Like what? I wanted to shove my fist down my throat. Bonnie's mother, I could see, was thinking along similar lines. The widow porter shot to her feet and thrust her face to within an inch of mine. What did you say? I tried the pacifier. I'm sorry, Mrs. Porter. Uh, perhaps you misunderstood me. Sometimes I don't make myself clear. She backed off a little. Good. She was listening. Even better. I knew I could smooth this over if my mouth had only let me. Just as her face began to soften, I felt my lips begin to move. I could do nothing but listen. What I really meant to say was that I'd like to drill her with a special tool I keep buttoning in my pants. As a matter of fact, I'd like to use it on both of you. Scoundrel! she cried and swung her heavy purse at me, missing my face by a fraction of an inch. Bounder! She grabbed Bonnie by the hand and yanked her from the room. The girl flashed me a smile and a lascivious wink on the way out. Sweating and gasping, I slumped against the door. I lost control of my voice. Every thought that flashed into my brain was going straight out my mouth. What was wrong with me? I was glad it was a slow day. I went to my office and poured two fingers of bourbon from the bottle I kept in the bottom drawer. I downed it in a single swallow. I looked at my framed degree from dental school hanging on the wall. I had counted on becoming wealthy here in Dodge. Now I was ruining it. When I heard the front door open, I hesitated going out. It was frightening not to be able to control your words. But I had to defeat this malady. I had to overcome it by sheer force of will. I forced myself into the anteroom. It was empty. I went into the drilling room and found a familiar figure sitting in the chair. We played draw poker most nights over at the 49er saloon. I wouldn't say we were friends in the truest sense of the word, but I was the closest thing he had to a friend besides his brother. Wyatt Earp slouched in the chair, helping himself to my nitrous oxide. Wyatt giggled. Got a toothache, Doc. Don't overdo that sweet air, Wyatt, I said. I have to send all the way to Chicago for more. The smile wavered off and on again. You'll be going to Chicago and staying there if you try any more funny business with Miss Bonnie Porter. I remembered then that Wyatt had been keeping company with the widow Porter lately. I never touched her. But you said some lewd and obscene things that I'd jail you for if you weren't a friend. She's a fine example of young Kansas womanhood and should not be exposed to such behavior. She's a tease waiting to blossom into a tart, I said. Wyatt looked at me with a strange expression. He wanted to frown, but the nitrous oxide wouldn't let him. I won't have you speak that way about the daughter of a woman for whom I harbor deep feelings. You harbor deep feelings for her daughter, and you don't want anyone to get to Bonnie before you. And as for the widow Porter... Your only deep feelings are for her bank account. His half-smile finally disappeared. Hey, now wait a minute, Doc. I really love that woman, 
I laughed. <laughs> you must think I'm as stupid as you are. What was I saying? Wyatt had four inches and a good hundred pounds over me. I wanted to vomit. I think you might be a stupid dead man, Doc, if you don't watch what you're saying, he said menacingly as he straightened up from the chair. I tried to stop myself, but couldn't. My mouth ran on. Come on, Wyatt. You're fleecing her. It's true that I'm allowing her to invest in a couple of the mines that I own, but as a peace officer, I resent your implication that I'm involved in anything illegal. You're a disgrace to the badge, Wyatt. People laugh at you, behind your back, of course, because they know if they get on your wrong side, they'll wind up in jail on some trumped-up charge or backshot by your brother, Virgil. He was stepping toward me, his right hand balled into a fist. I broke out in a cold sweat and felt my bladder try to empty. I probably could have stopped him there with a few rational words or even a quick confession of abject fear. I actually felt the words forming in my mouth as he raised his arm to punch me. And that was when the odor hit me. Standing helpless before him as he loomed over me, I listened in horror as my voice said, God, you smell too. Did it ever occur to you to take a bath before? When I woke up on the floor, Wyatt was gone. I staggered to my feet. I... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Jaw ached and my upper lip was swelling. When the room stopped tilting back and forth, I stumbled into the waiting room. This was a nightmare. If I kept insulting everyone who came to my office, I'd have to close my practice. What would I do? I was already 26 and not good for much else besides gambling and shooting. I wasn't a bad shot. Maybe I could take over Earp's job when he left for Tombstone next year. An odd-looking figure entered then. A skinny old squaw with a hooked nose and dark, piercing eyes set in a face wrinkled like a raisin. That was all I could see of her. The rest of her was swathed in a dusty serape. There was a small red kerchief around her head. I knew her. Everybody in town knew her. Squaw Jones. She'd been married to an old white man, Aaron Jones, until he got drunk 
and trampled by a stagecoach a few years ago. Now she wandered in and out of town, selling charms and potions. I see Dr. Holliday has bad times, Squaw Jones said. What is problem? That's what I'm supposed to say, I shouted. I'm the doctor here. Is your words? You say what wish to hide inside? I was shocked. Yes. How did you know? Squaw smell bad medicine when she pass. Bad medicine? You have curse. I am well aware of that. Squaw Jones can help. Know of these things. You victim of curse of untethered tongue. Very bad medicine. You're serious. You're talking about a curse curse, like the evil eye or something like that. Much worse. I feel bad enough already. Don't try to make me feel stupid, too. You will see, Dr. Holliday, she said, reaching for the door handle. You will see, and then you will come to Squaw Jones. I sincerely doubt it. Remember these words. When fine man with missing peace, you'll find enemy. I haven't got any enemies. It could be friend. I haven't got many of those either. At least not after this morning. Remember, Squaw Jones, she said as she shuffled out the door. You will need her. That'll be the day, I thought. I didn't need an Indian. I needed another drink. The next few days recapitulated the events of that morning. I insulted and alienated each member of a steady, dwindling flow of patience. But at least no one punched me. As I sat and looked out the front window of my empty waiting room, I noticed Mrs. DeLula waddling along the boardwalk. She turned into the doorway of the new dentist who had come into town a few months ago, Dr. James Elliot. He had been starving. Now he had Mrs. DeLula. Glumly, I wondered how many other patients I was driving to him. The waiting room door opened, and there was Squaw Jones again. Squaw can come in? I motioned her forward. Why not? I had plenty of time on my hands. Squaw Jones looked the same as she had days ago, a stick figure swathed in a dirty serape. Her bright, beady eyes swept the barren waiting room. I thought I detected a hint of a smile at the corners of her mouth, but it was hard to be sure amid all of her wrinkles. Curse of untethered tongue continue, yes? It's not a curse, I said. Just a little problem I have to resolve. I don't believe in curses. She looked me in the eye. There was no doubt about the smile now. You could have sent Squaw away, she said. But you chose to see her. I knew right then I was dealing with a sly old Squaw. I'm a man of science, I told her. A dentist. What do you want from me? Squaw only wants to help. For a price, I'm sure. Her shrug was elaborate. Must clothe this body. Must eat. This wouldn't be blackmail, would it? 
Dr. Holliday, she said, puffing herself up. Squaws like you have medicine to sell like you have honor. That's not the point. Even granting the existence of such a thing as a curse, I can't imagine anyone who dislikes me enough, before this week, that is, to place a curse on me. Unhappy patient, maybe? That was all too possible. What, with all the gold fillings I yanked from people's mouths while they were unconscious in the chair? But someone like that would go to Wyatt first. I can't imagine what complaint a patient of mine could have. I almost choked on that one. Enemy? None whatsoever. Someone want to steal your medicine? You mean a competitor? Well, there is one of those. There seems to be an increasing flow of new dentists from the East. Who in from Dr. Holiday bad medicine? Well, Dr. Elliot is benefiting now, but I laughed. No, it's too absurd. Maybe him. Jim Elliot, putting a curse on me so I'll say things I don't want to? Ridiculous. Curse of untethered tongue, say what in the heart. Perhaps Dr. Holliday not like his patience. I said, look, I'm very busy right now. Bad medicine always helps someone. I felt the first twinges of uneasiness. This whole idea was absurd. And yet, I turned and found Squaw Jones grinning at me with crooked yellow teeth. She said, Fine man with missing peace. You could use a good dentist, I said. Around supper time, I was at my usual table in the 49er, alone, nursing a whiskey, shuffling a deck of cards. I dared not play for fear that I would tell everyone what was in my hand at any moment. My fingers froze in mid-shuffle when Dr. Elliot walked in. I watched him for a few moments, as much as my mind rebelled against the concept of such a thing as a curse. I couldn't get the thought out of my head. Could this mild-looking fellow dentist have actually placed a curse on my practice? The more I thought about it here, amid the smells and laughter of the cowhands, the stage drivers, the gamblers, and the plain old riffraff, the more laughable it became. I wandered over to where he stood. He had a round face made wider by bushy sideburns. He looked tired. Why not? He had been drilling the teeth of my former patients all day. I was about to say hello when I noticed that he was missing a part of his left fifth digit. The terminal phalanx was gone. As I gaped at the shiny pink dome of fresh scar tissue where his first knuckle should have been, I heard Squaw Jones' voice in my head. Fine man with missing piece. I was too shocked for subtlety. Your finger! What happened to it? He jumped at the sound of my voice, and his complexion faded a couple of shades as he looked at me. Uh, hello, John. My finger? Why, why, nothing happened to it. Why do you ask? I never noticed that you had a piece missing before now. When did it happen? He smiled, regaining his composure. Oh, that. An old accident when I was in school back east. 
An industrial accident, you might say. I caught it in a defective drilling machine. I couldn't take my eyes from that foreshortened digit. The scar tissue doesn't look that old. An old injury, do you hear? He was becoming agitated. Very old. Very, very old. The obvious freshness of the scar and Dr. Elliot's overwrought behavior sent a stream of ice water running through my arteries. When fine man with missing peace, you find enemy. Yes, of course, I said. Very old, of course. He thrust his hand into his pocket. I fled the saloon and ran to the stable. I saddled my horse and rode out to where Squaw Jones made her camp. So now, Dr. Holliday, believe in curse of untethered tongue, she said, nodding and smiling with smug satisfaction. Not completely, I said. Let's just say I disbelieve in it less than I did this afternoon. Her tent was dim, the air inside steamy and layered with reminders of past meals, strangely spiced. But I just can't believe, I said that one of my colleagues, a fellow dental practitioner, would be so unethical as to use such scurrilous means to build his practice at my expense. You would never do such a thing? Never. I am an ethical practitioner. And what is your wish, Dr. Holliday? To have the curse, if that's what it is, lifted. By this squaw? Of course. That's why I'm here. Want thirteen ounces gold for ending untethered tongue. Thirteen out? But this squad know it very small price for saving Dr. Holliday's honor, but her heart is touched by his misfortune. She cleared her throat. <clears throat> Please pay in metals, not bills. I'd hidden away significantly more than that amount of gold from the fillings I'd removed over the years, but thirteen ounces. I'd want a guarantee. Nothing sure in magic, Dr. Holliday. I rose from my seat and started for the door. I'm sorry. I can't allow myself to be made into a fool. I was bluffing. I bluffed well in poker, even back then, and had little doubt I could get her to back down. But she kept quiet waiting until my hand closed on the doorknob before she spoke. She did not, however, say the words I was hoping for. For three more ounces, maybe this squaw can turn bad medicine back on ones who started. As I said before, a sly old bird. I had taken the bait. Now she set the hook. A gamble of sixteen ounces. But suddenly I didn't care. I wanted to get even. I returned to my chair. Can you really do that? She nodded. If Dr. Holliday makes sacrifice. Sacrifice? Wait a second here. I... Must have no fear. I'll have no fear as long as I have my revenge. She smiled and rubbed her hands together. This is good. What do I have to do? Dr. Holliday must give three things. First thing closely touches maker of untethered tongue. You know who he is. 
Dr. Elliot, I said. No doubt about it. But just how closely must this thing touch? Very close. Underclothes. Pen. I considered that for a moment. How on earth was I going to handle that? How was I going to get a hold of a pair of Elliot's underwear? Maybe a sock would do. No matter. I'd find a way. What else do you need? Need small amount of Dr. Holliday's liquid. Liquid? This was getting more cliched by the minute. You mean blood? She shook her head. She seemed embarrassed. <laughs> Fluid that only man can give. I don't understand, I began. And then I did. What kind of magic is this? Very, very old. Really? And what if I were a woman? We wait for your time of month. I see. I found it difficult to believe I was sitting here having a serious conversation about this. She cleared her throat again. <clears throat> the sample. You can give some? I squared my shoulders. Of course. And the third thing? This squaw will tell when you bring first two. I wasn't sure I liked the sound of that, but I couldn't turn back now. I had stepped over the edge and had left the safe and sane world behind. I was now adrift in the world of the magical and the irrational. Squaw Jones' world. I had to trust her as a guide. Early the next morning, I was at the hotel next to my office, eating eggs and potatoes. I've never liked eggs and potatoes, but I was there because Elliot was there. I raged silently as I watched him storing up on his nourishment before a busy day of drilling the teeth of my patients. I was in a black mood. I had been by his rooming house earlier, but had found none of his laundry around. I'd been tempted to break into his quarters, but was afraid I'd get caught. I couldn't risk that, with Wyatt still mad at me. As I watched him, he stirred his coffee and licked the spoon dry before placing it on the tablecloth. A neat man. A fastidious man. I felt like running over and wringing his... The spoon. I almost shouted out loud. That's it. The spoon. It had been in his mouth. What contact could be more close than being in someone's mouth? I waited until he finished his meal and departed, then hurried over to his table, just beating the serving girl to it. She gave me a strange look as I darted in front of her and grabbed the spoon off the tray, but I simply continued on my way without a backward glance, as if this were the most natural thing in the world. The hard part was over. I headed across the street to the back rooms at the 49er. Miss Lily would be waking up just about now. For a nominal fee, she'd help me obtain the second ingredient. This was the easy part. Now what? I said as I held out the spoon and a small cup of cloudy liquid to Squaw Jones. She made no move to take them from me. You have gold? Yes. I pulled a leather pouch from my coat pocket. Sixteen ounces, as agreed. I held my breath as she loosened the drawstring and looked inside. My larcenous heart had prevailed on me to cheat her out of her payment. No gold for Squaw Jones. 
Instead, I'd made nuggets of lead and coated them with the gold-colored material I used for my fake gold fillings. They wouldn't stand close inspection. She looked inside, gauged the weight of the bag in her hand, then nodded. Is good. The pouch disappeared inside her serape, and then she took the two ingredients from me. Now this squaw make mix. Dr. Holliday, wait outside. What about the third ingredient? She smiled. Soon, Dr. Holliday, must be patient. It was difficult to be patient knowing that Dr. Elliot was busy in his office working on my patients while my office door was locked. After what seemed like hours, Squaw Jones called me back in. I found her sitting there with a cup of steaming liquid. Now time for third ingredient. The sacrifice. What sort of sacrifice? I didn't like the sound of this one bit. Small part of you. Something Dr. Holliday will not miss, but something that will not grow back. Wait just a minute, I said. I'd heard about deals like this where you make a trade for something you'll never miss, and I didn't want to fall into that trap. We're not talking about my soul, are we? She laughed. <laughs> no, only small piece of flesh. Token for gods. Dr. Elliot gave finger. How did you know that? You told this squaw last night. Did I? I don't remember. You did. Dr. Holliday must make same sacrifice if he wish bad medicine go away. Something that won't grow back. That left out hair and fingernail clippings. I certainly didn't want to lose a part of a finger. I didn't approve of public deformity. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. She shrugged. Without sacrifice, Dr. Elliot will not feel curse of unhindered hands. Unhindered hands? Just what is that? Like untethered tongue. As Dr. Holliday's lips now speak what he wish kept hidden in heart, Dr. Elliot's hands will do things he only wished to do. The thought of Dr. Elliot's hands acting upon whatever physical desires occur to him, to be no more able to restrain his hands than I had been able to restrain my tongue, delighted me. Then I thought of something neither I nor anyone else would miss. How about my little toe? It is good, she said. How do we do this? Following her directions, I removed the boot and sock from my left foot and held it over the steaming liquid. Dip toe. Feeling like a fool for going through this hocus, yet hating myself for not having the nerve to call the whole thing off and take my chances with my unruly tongue, I dipped my little toe into the cup. Enough, she said after a moment. She withdrew the cup and handed me a dirty cloth. Dry toe. I scrutinized my left fifth toe. It looked just like the others, only wet. Something's wrong. I said. I thought I was supposed to sacrifice this toe. Nothing happened. Patience, Dr. Holliday. Patience. I was convinced now that I was being hoodwinked. 
I quickly rubbed my toe dry and rose to my feet. This is a farce. I'm glad I didn't give you any real gold. Her head snapped around. She stared at me. Gold not real? No, so you can call off this whole charade. Too late. Medicine is made. Curse begins. But my toe. I looked down at my left foot. There were only four toes. All that remained of my tenth toe was a small pink bulge of fresh scar tissue. Where? I opened the cloth, and there was my toe. As I watched, it fumed and melted into a pink fluid that was absorbed by the cloth. The odor made me want to gag. Squaw Jones was pawing through the bag of fake gold nuggets. Dr. Holliday tricked this squaw? Why not? You're probably the one who got me in this fix in the first place. You're playing both sides of street. She approached me, menace in her eyes. I kept watch on her hands, making sure both were in sight. They were, clutching the pouch of fake gold. Her face came within inches of mine. She stared at me. Then she coughed. Once. Return to your office, Dr. Holliday. Curse of untethered tongue is broken. Curse of unhampered hands begin. Squaw Jones cannot change that now. I glanced down at my four-toed foot again and realized I was rapidly becoming a believer. With boot and sock in hand, I hurried from Squaw Jones' tent. But you will pay another way, she called after me. The first patient to show up was Mr. O'Toole. My private name for him was Mr. O'Stool. He had a bowel fixation which he blamed on his bad teeth. He spent most of his visits describing his movements. He was a bore, but he came every two weeks for new fillings. But I got through the visit with no problem. I'd had an urge to tell him that I thought he was suffering from a fecal impaction that had backed up to his brain. But the remark remained within my mind while my mouth offered bland reassurances. I drilled his latest imaginary cavity and fairly danced out of the examining room. I've done it. I've broken the curse. I went to the front window of my waiting room and looked across the street at Dr. Elliot's office. I whispered, I've beaten you, Elliot. Beaten you at your own game. As I watched, I saw Bonnie Porter come racing out of Dr. Elliot's office, trying to cover her bobbing, exposed breasts with one hand while holding up her ripped shirt with the other. In close pursuit, with a piece of Bonnie's torn bodice clutched in his teeth, was Dr. Elliot. And right behind the two of them was the widow Porter, swinging her handbag. She caught Dr. Elliot full force in the back of the head with a swing, and he went down. Then she stood over him and began pounding him with the bag. I watched until Wyatt ran up. He pulled his pistol and just stood there, his eyes captured by the pink-tipped whiteness of Bonnie's breast. I knew, though, that as soon as she covered herself, Wyatt would be on Dr. Elliot like a lynch mob. He wasn't going to take at all kindly to someone going after Bonnie Porter before he'd had first. Poor Dr. Elliot. Couldn't control his hands. Such a shame. 
As I turned away, I felt a twinge behind my sternum. I began to cough. I'd never coughed like this before in my life. Spasms racked my chest. I pulled out my handkerchief and buried my face in it, trying to muffle the coughs, perhaps suppress them by trapping them inside. Suddenly, I felt something tear free in my chest and fill my throat. I gagged it out. Blood stained my handkerchief. Hemoptysis. A bloody cough. A sure sign of consumption, or what they were now calling tuberculosis. But how could I have tuberculosis? I hadn't been visiting anyone in a sanitarium, and the only people in these parts who had any tuberculosis were Indians. Squaw Jones had coughed in my face, but only once, and that had been just a few hours ago. I couldn't have developed tuberculosis in that short time. It was impossible. I glanced out the window again, Wyatt was leading Dr. Elliot off toward the jail and being none too gentle about it. In the crowd that had gathered, all heads were turned to watch them go. All except one. Squaw Jones was there, staring directly at me. I coughed again. That was F. Paul Wilson's The Tenth Toe, as read by Rock Manor. Rock Manor has been featured as a voice performer on podcasts, such as the No Sleep Podcast, Pseudopod, and Right Here on Tales to Terrify. He is a producer of Manor House, hosted by The Phantom Collector, a horror audio anthology series featured on both iTunes and YouTube. Producers of the Black Tapes podcast call Manor House top-notch, and best-selling author Brian Keene says Manor House is like Tales from the Crypt. It's really fucking cool, which Rock thinks is also really fucking cool. Visit his website at manorhouseshow.com. And, of course, Rock Manor served as editor right here at Tales to Terrify for a turn as well. Thank you, Rock. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 